0: We are back with a HubScale podcast. This week's guest is Ira Winkler, field CISO at SAI. He's an author, advisor, a keynote speaker at some of the largest security conferences in the world. Ira, it's great to have you on.
1: Uh, pleasure to be here.
0: It's <laughs> no problem at all. And I guess for everybody listening, Ira, it'd be great to give a quick introduction on yourself.
1: So, I mean, there's a lot there. I My career is kind of like thirty five plus years, but essentially started out my career at the National Security Agency, where I was an intelligence analyst Then got into the intern program and essentially became a computer systems analyst after that. Did a bunch of different things from, you know, supercomputer cryptanalysis programming to system design, development, implementation, support to field ops. I ended up working for government contractors to support, you know, NSA as well as other U.S. and foreign intelligence and defense agencies, and did a bunch of things. Then one day they came to me and said, instead of going to the Pentagon, can you make a few phone calls? And three days later I had control over one of the world's largest investment banks. So anyway, a little while later I wrote a paper because my company had a policy. If you got a paper accepted at professional conferences, they had to send you. So I wrote a paper on how to take over a bank and it was called the Seminal Work in Social Engineering. I had to look up what seminal meant and what social engineering meant. Then from that point, I did a lot of what I called espionage simulations, putting together teams of former special forces and intelligence officers where we would target a company like real, highly capable nation states would and got a reputation for stealing billions of dollars and the like. And what then happened was I, well, you know, Long story short, started a company, sold the company to HP when HP was actually a real company at the time. I'll say it that way, and um, ended up, um, you know, being chief security strategist there. Then after a while, left the HP, and I went to work, started another company. You know, focused on the human aspects of cybersecurity. Along the way, I wrote eight books, from you know, mostly about espionage and human aspects of cybersecurity. Most recent is Security Awareness for Dummies, as well as Cybersecurity All-in-One for Dummies, Security Awareness for Dummies parts were taken and put in that book. So technically, I'm a co-author there and was chief security architect at Walmart and then left for my current company, Size Security, where I'm the field CISO at the moment.
0: Yeah, no, awesome. It's a it's a fantastic career for sure. Multiple, multiple different avenues. Selling your own business, diving into uh, a lot of the the cool topics. Even becoming a, a multiple time author as well. It's just just awesome stuff. So I know you mentioned side there at the the end. It'd be great to just dive into a little bit about what you guys do and what's your mission.
1: Well, so my whole career and I've and people can see this. It's well documented. Nineteen ninety six when I wrote it. Ninety seven when it was released, according to the copyright. You know, I've always said the problem with cybersecurity is that CSOs get the budgets that they deserve, not the budgets that they need, and they need to learn to deserve more, because basically CSOs have never been able to tell a story in business terms. And you know, to make a long story short, I was nation-state level hackers that started the organization. And then what happened was they said, we need to actually make all this stuff useful. So they brought in nation state level machine learning experts and mathematicians, and they developed a system that does a combination of risk quantification, as well as attack surface exposure management, attack path visualization, being able to show how bad people or good people put the assets an organization has in danger in very detailed specificity, and essentially implements risk optimization as well to the point where the system we have helps design security programs and say, these are the vulnerabilities that are the most costly, or these are the vulnerabilities that need to be mitigated most. And so to have risk quantification within 7% accuracy, combined with figuring out which are the vulnerabilities most likely to be exploited, We're able to help organizations develop pretty much very detailed, the most cost-effective possible cybersecurity programs. And frankly, the product helps companies save more money than they spend because we're able to also point out which countermeasures are worthless to the organization. And a lot of people don't consider that. You know, they solve a purpose, but if you can stop something downstream from where the threat, where, where it's at risk you can get rid of a whole bunch of countermeasures along the way and save yourself a lot of money in the interim.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And it's a, it's a pretty cool mission as well. I think especially right now with the economic situation, people need to kind of understand where the budget needs to be allocated and and obviously the cost of saving as well. It's a, it's a huge part of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're talking, you know, talking to people who like, well, we need to cut 10% of our budget or even if the budget's flat, it's like, you know, obviously, You know, people have to spend money on the system, but I'm like, you know, you spend a little bit money here, we might be able to return like 25% of your cybersecurity budget on the tools, the money you're spending on tools, because they might not even be relevant if you tweak your program a little bit. And that really is how CISO should be thinking. But right now, the problem is when you look at how security programs are budgeted, basically you start out, what was the budget last year? And can we keep the budget? Can I get a little bit more because there's this other li- really cool tool I think will be helpful. And maybe it might be, but you know, you're really basing your entire security program on what your security program previously was, not where it should be. And I've been around long enough to know there was this whole concept of, what was it called? Re-engineering. And, you know, back in the 1990s, um, you know, there was a whole concept of business process re-engineering, and we kind of should start doing that with cybersecurity as well, where companies have to really stop and say, okay, here's my program as it is. But instead of saying, okay, how do I keep it maintained? The question should be, where should my program be? And if I were to start from scratch, what program would I design now? And right now, the problem is that people are designing, are not designing programs intentionally. They're maintaining programs, you know, that were there for whatever reason, good, bad or indifferent. And that, I think, is a problem.
0: Yeah. And um, you mentioned there, obviously, why why don't you think that CISOs are not thinking about it that way or, or looking at it that way um, within the world?
1: Well, Frank, I think a lot of CISOs, number one, are overworked. And this is not intended to be an insult, but I think a lot of CISOs are under trained. I mean, what I'm talking about is applying MBA level, and I don't even think it's MBA, maybe it's DBA level types of business processes where even outside of cybersecurity, most business and business units inside an organization do not stop and say, okay, let me take a completely, I don't think this is the right expression, but I can't think of another one. Let me take a blue ocean view of where should my cybersecurity program be? And nobody stops to think that way. They stop to think operations, maintenance, things like that, because they already have a lot of money spent and invested. And a lot of the things, you know, people in theory, I can't see, in theory, a replacement because you're not going to get rid of, for example, Mm anti-malware. You're not going to get rid of secure email gateways, for example. Then you say, there's all these things I'm not going to get rid of. Why should I rethink this and and take all this time away from thinking strategy as opposed to just thinking, putting the fires out where I am? And that's that's an unusual ask. And the problem is... Nobody has written a paper in Harvard Business Review or something else. Maybe someday McKenzie will come up with some service or whatever to help companies, you know, re-engineer their cybersecurity programs. But it's it's a lack of, you know, again, it's not intended to be an insult, but it's a lack of vision, availability or so on. And, you know, they don't, they don't have the time, nor are they given the mandate to say, stop Tell me where you should be if you were to start from scratch today.
0: Yeah, I think um, this is pretty interesting as well, because if you look at how many tools there are in the market in security, um, you can imagine that the CISOs as well sometimes sometimes being kind of overwhelmed, even if they have bought a tool and it doesn't work out, is the pressure from that going to be a problem for them as well? So there's there's so many things that probably go on as well that they don't really have the time to maybe go through it. But you're right, it's a, it's a real business kind of structure, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's um, and this is what people say. I mean, I, I got I started a whole bunch of controversy on LinkedIn last week. You know, <laughs> when I said, you know, the problem with I go, the, you know, I go CISOs who think the CISOs should be on the board of directors are the reason CISOs shouldn't be on the board of directors. Because there's a whole bunch of people, a lot of CISOs know what I'm talking about. I specifically said a CISO who thinks the CISO should be on the board of directors. In other words, people are thinking, oh, for a board, you know, cybersecurity is so critical and obviously I should have this strategic input. And everybody says, yeah, that's right. And then I'm stopping to think that's not the purpose of a board. Because essentially, the board is responsible for oversight of the organization. And you're saying essentially the CISO is technically the boss of the CEO. but And because really, the purpose of the board is not what people think it is. It's to ensure that the processes are being regularly reviewed. It's to not design a cybersecurity program, not mandate, here's what cybersecurity should be but they have oversight into ensuring that cybersecurity is included with all the business thought processes that go in and properly integrated. And it's nice to have a maybe somebody with a CISO background, but you, know, you have other people who don't have a CISO background, but have the knowledge and experience. Like for example, Dave DeWalt, you know, who's currently, and I know he's on the board of directors for a lot of companies. He has good background without actually having been a CISO because he knows what people should be thinking of. Then on the other extreme, you might have some, you know, like Myrna Soto. Myrna has been a CISO for major organizations. And I know she's on a few public boards and, you know, she belongs there because not only does she have the actual hands on talent, but she understands the business Needs and capabilities of an organization, which is more critical because cybersecurity is not a driver of an organization. The driver of an organization is to return a profit to shareholders. You know, that at the end of the day is the primary purpose of a board. You know, you want to make sure they do it well and responsibly, but they have to keep in mind what is the primary purpose.
0: Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. I think the the way businesses are set up from the very beginning as well. Um, it kind of defines their journey, and having having board board of directors, especially like Dave DeWalt, obviously with Night Dragon, um, very very cool stuff that he's been doing over his career as well. But I guess um, just talking on that part there, and um, talking about the early stage um, areas as well that you're working, with, obviously with Glilot and companies like that, working when you're kind of assessing vendors and working with really early stage founders, what do you look for in them as well when kind of kind of assessing them?
1: See, and that's another thing. I really, I really fringe when I hear people saying, oh, they don't want me as, you know, as a founder, they'll never fund me. I go, most people are never funded. Mm-hmm. I had two companies that I started that I got a little bit of money on. I was turned down for more term sheets. I was actually given term sheets and actually turned one down at the last moment because they were trying to screw us over on terms at the last moment. Takes a lot of nerve to actually turn down $12 million. But um thinking back on that. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, when you look at it, first off, you want to see a team of people. Cause I will be very impolite to you right now. Running a business as a founder is a clusterfuck. And that is the politest I could ever be on this. Because you are dealing with so many things as a founder, from raising money, from paying your people, from simultaneously finding customers, putting processes in place, dealing with vendors, dealing with accountants, dealing with stupid things like who you pay your rent to not having and not maintaining the property well. You need to have somebody, ideally when you look at this, you wanna have experienced founders pursuing thing. You wanna have experienced people who are running the company and you're like, well, how are you gonna get experience? I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer. I never had the answer for myself until after I did it myself for lack of a better term. And you know, you need people who start some level of business and have, you know, the term I think is grit because you're gonna have problems. Not only that, you don't just need somebody who has this really great technology. They have to be able to sell. I hated salespeople early in my career. When I worked for government contractors, God, I hate, I hated them. I thought they were the sleaziest people out there, not realizing at the time, because I didn't have that perspective, that without them, I would not have a job. And frankly, when you're a founder, the number one thing you got to remember is cash flow. And when people are dealing with this, you need somebody who can go ahead. A good technology, wonderful. Is this good technology going to be able to go to market even more, you know, even more important, you know, because I know some people who developed the greatest technologies out there and they went nowhere. And these people are now an employee somewhere else, even though like one person, I was told by everybody, he developed the greatest, and this is 20 years ago, the greatest uh, intrusion prevention system at the time. And he couldn't figure out how to sell it. I think he got screwed over once by somebody who was trying, who claimed to be helping him, but didn't. And you just need somebody. But in number one is the team. That's first. Is this team going to be able to le- deliver? Number two is the market. Is the market willing to go ahead and do this? And I should say part of number one is, can they sell it? Mm -hmm. You know, that's another critical thing, even more important than almost the team itself. But number two is the market. Is the market going to be wanting this product? And unfortunately, the third thing is the last on the list is almost the technology. Because companies would rather take or investors would rather take a risk on a technology than they would on the market, and you got to understand that's why you see so many products do essentially the same thing, because it's just a little different way of doing something. But the reason is there's the market for that thing. Anyway, I think I beat that to death. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I love the uh, I think the the finding the part about selling the actual product itself because even very early on you need to find out what your actual customer is and then therefore you can hire the right people to sell into that customer because sometimes I when I go through the consulting piece with a few of the vendors that I work with early stage they haven't even figured out how they're going to sell it is it product like growth is it obviously channel or direct or anything like that so Mm -hmm. and then you can't hire the wrong or you may end up hiring the wrong person for that as well which is always an interesting journey.
1: Yeah, there's actually a book I recommend to everybody called The The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. And it's E. It doesn't stand for like electronic, like email. It stands for E, entrepreneurial myth. So E-Myth and then revisited. I guess there was a first book, E-Myth, which was good, but the revisited version was better. And the difference was they go through this example where a woman made a really good chocolate chip cookie Sounds very mundane. And everybody said, oh, that cookie is awesome. You should sell that cookie. And so the woman's like, yeah, I'm going to do that. But then the whole thing was, okay, how do I do a, you know, now I have to make a, like, I have to buy flour. I have to buy sugar. I have to figure out where I'm going to put this. And towards the end of it, it's like this woman is not even baking cookies anymore. You know, what she loved to do maybe. And then how do you get consistently good cookies and so on? And it's the whole process. The product itself was irrelevant to running a business compared to running the business. And it's a great story. And then likewise, to your point about the right people. And one of the reasons, like, you know, I say people are more important than the product itself is there's like kind of a life cycle of a business. And hopefully I don't know where, like how it's going to look on the screen. But, you know, um, let's see. So, yeah, going from, you know, starting from, I'll do it in reverse. So going from, I think that's right to left, I'm doing left to right at the moment, but initially a business is about chaos and an early stage founder has to know how to navigate chaos. And in the ideal world, they then get the chaos to a stable point where they can then put systems in place. And an early stage, a successful early stage business has to put systems in place. In cybersecurity, the systems in place include, okay, number one, sales. How can I consistently sell the product? How can I maintain the quality of the product? How can I satisfy my customers in a systematic, repeatable way? And so on. How can I innovate and keep doing things? And then once you get those systems in place and you have sales and then hopefully you're starting growth, then you have the, oper- the maintenance phase. And the maintenance phase is like, okay, I'm operating a large company and now I'm in that phase and so on. And then hopefully you never get to the fourth phase, which is like a company death where it's just irrelevant. You know, unfortunately, like, you know, I was joking about HP when it was real HP, but HP became a behemoth. And then it started, it's still there and the people are wonderful, but it's in smaller pieces. Pieces have been sold off and yet they're navigate, you know, they had to navigate almost not the death of the company, but the death of the company as it was. I'll phrase it that way. Yeah. And so you need people, frankly, who are going to be there. And the person, unfortunately, I had, I learned this the hard way with my first company. I never thought I was that CISO to maintain an operating or the CEO to maintain a high level of operation. And there was a guy I worked for, and he was one of the best managers I experienced to that point. And he was great at managing. And then I hired him for my startup to be my boss. And I he was the first employee I ever had to fire. And because <laughs> what <laughs> happened was he was, again, I'm sure he was great, but he, here I was like, okay, you're going to help me. We need customers. You know, I didn't have, I was working out of my basement and he was going around trying to find office space and a secretary. And I'm like, you're finding office space and a secretary. How about a new client? Because that's what we need. We need a new client. I don't need overhead for you to have an office and a secretary. So anyway, sorry, uh, I I digress, but, you know, that's the type of thing that a startup has to understand. And it's, you know, it's the process, it's the people and so on. So,
0: yeah, no, no, I think, I think it's awesome. I think, um, even going through that that early stage at the moment, I mean, with HubScale, we're only four people, been around for a year. Um, it's a completely different sector, but at the same time, it's that grit, determination, and 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 kind of growing the business at any cost, any any cost really. So, no, that's that's fantastic advice, Ira. Um, and uh, I guess in terms, just diving into a little bit more on the the position that you're in right now. I think the field seesaw role has been around well, more more or so over the past few years. But just tell me how that's actually done effectively within an organization.
1: So here's the thing, I would actually contend the field CISO has been around for a while, it just hasn't been called that. Okay. So for example, when I was at HP, I was chief security strategist, You know, that was back in 2001 when I started doing it. That essentially, that role was kind of like a field CISO, where what I was doing was a combination of working with clients, working with the people who do delivery and kind of trying to bring things back in place helping them mature the product while simultaneously advancing you know advancing sales advancing visibility and so on so that people were more aware because at the time You know i'm kind of proud i i I don't think there's anybody who would care now but when we went in there they were doing 4 million when i left the organization a few years later it was doing 20 million in the group i was primarily working with and that was because we're out there evangelizing the fact that we did those type of services that i was out there meeting with clients that i could get them excited about what was going on and so on And then simultaneously working with the business managers and helping them mature the product, mature the sales efforts, working with the sales teams, especially in a mega organization like a Fortune 50 company that's like a services, you have to go ahead and understand that you're going to be working through getting people to just sell your services. You could have the greatest thing in the world, but even internally, you have to develop trust because let's say you're working for a company like an HP at the time, which was a combination of hardware, software, and you know, consulting services. It's easy for a sales rep to sell hardware and software. They sell a glossy sheet. They know what they're selling. They know how much the customer wants. They know how to upgrade it. If they're not familiar with the consulting side, then they're not gonna sell it because they can make more than enough money as a sales rep to say, this is what we need. And I give credit to, at the time, I think it was Anne Livermore, if I remember names right, who was who became the CEO of HP, but she was running HP Solutions or whatever it was called at the time. And she put in a mandatory quota for all of the salespeople to sell services. And that's how we really took off by having her as a champion for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: no, no, it's definitely cool. It's definitely cool. So I guess where I'm going to kind of flip that question back on its head, where do companies go wrong with the role? Um, because sometimes it, the role, sometimes they hire the wrong people in, but yeah, it'd be great to hear your thoughts on where they go wrong with hiring the field. See
1: so. so in my opinion, my personal opinion, and this is obviously biased towards me, <laughs> in my opinion, personal opinion Field CISOs are really there to evangelize. You need someone with, I'll just say, reasonable charisma, reasonable enthusiasm. You need good contacts. There are some field CISOs or the equivalent who basically can go ahead and be a talking head. They have a past executive role at some point in time. And that's great for them. And then they think, okay, you've, you've spoken to executives now sell the thing. And you know, what they're doing is they're just kind of helping salespeople talk to the executives and taking it. I personally think a good field CISO should bring something more than as opposed to just walking in and helping the sales reps kind of sort of close the sales. They should be able to bring visibility for the company as a whole. They should be able to excite people, bring in leads and so on, and not just be there to be, I'm, I'm the former executive at this company, so now I'm here to try to tell you we are a legitimate company. And there's a lot of them that are out there doing that, where you see, I mean, see somebody and you see that on their title, but you never see them actually At events or talking to people, they just have this title that's, you know, somewhere on, you know, that you see their face on a website, you never run into them anywhere else.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely, it's definitely interesting, you see different types of the role. And different person personas really coming into them types of roles, but no, sir, it's definitely an interesting position for sure. But I guess, um, I guess kind of flipping it back into what we was talking about really, really early. Stone, and we've talked about this multiple times as well. But in terms of hiring in security, that one of the biggest topics ever that we ever deal with is the talent gap within the security market. But tell me your thoughts on that, and then number one, how can we fix it?
1: So I wrote a paper, I I, went a, uh, I wrote an article for Computer World. I actually won a Bestie Award for <laughs> Best Opinion piece back in 2015, and it's called The Myth of the Cybersecurity Skills Shortage. And I still think it's the case today, because when you look at people in cybersecurity, we're like, we need these cybersecurity experts. I need to hire cybersecurity graduates. I need somebody certified. And I'm like thinking back to when everything first started and there was no such thing as a cybersecurity certification or graduate or something like that. And they treated cybersecurity as just another role within IT. And that, frankly, is how we should be doing it, because, for example, everybody's like, oh, I need a security admin. I'm like, "Okay, let's just go out and hire a systems admin and and tweak their you know, tweak their skill set a little bit because the move to go from a generic system admin to a security admin is really just a couple tweaks. Frankly, a lot of system administrators are already doing it. You know, for example, a NOC, uh, you know, like a, a NOC analyst compared to a SOC analyst, it's a little tweak, you know, like to get these roles and, you know, and get this. And if you want somebody to do, yes, programming, graphics, I mean, I think one of the reasons we have such terrible security programs and such bad security results is because, for example, we're not taking UX or or interface developers and training them to be programmers in cybersecurity, because we need to bring in good user experience experts into cybersecurity to design it. A lot of roles are mathematicians. We need to go ahead and... Take mathematicians and just say, hey, you're a good mathematician. I want you to apply your math skills to, for example, um, threat hunting, as opposed to saying, I need a highly skilled threat hunter. A lot of these people aren't there and more of them would be there if we just expanded how we're looking for it. We can't always look to hire, oh, well, they have a basic cybersecurity degree and now we're gonna try to advance them. It's a lot easier to take again a systems admin and train them to be a security admin then try to find somebody new to be a security admin just because they have the right degree. So anyway, there's that. And then, sorry, I was gonna go off on college degrees and the importance of those, but that's a separate question. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I thought you was gonna go down there. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, I mean, if you want me to go down, cause here's the problem. And let me actually stress this. I I mentioned a little bit machine learning before. So I don't think a lot of people understand what machine learning is. And I will take a step back and talk about this because is when we hire people and say, oh, we don't need anybody with a college degree. And then you point to companies like IBM and say, IBM is getting rid of the requirement for a college degree as an example, so are some other companies. They're not necessarily just getting rid of the requirement for a college degree because this makes people think, oh, here I am. I'm, I'll just go straight into the workplace instead of getting a degree. I'm like, that's not what IBM is saying. What IBM is saying is I have a person with 10 years of experience doing exactly what I need them to do. The fact that they went into, for example, the military instead of going into college, they don't have that degree. How can I hold that against them? And I'm like, that's a good reason. Unfortunately, people are getting the wrong impression. They're saying, I'm not going to stop from hiring somebody without a college degree if they have this 10 years of experience or whatever it is. They're not saying, I'm just going to get rid of the whole thing and just hire anybody who might not have even graduated high school. And that's a big difference. And people are looking at it and all these, the, 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 quote unquote, I use my Dr. Evil quotes, the cybersecurity influencers who get all their followers telling people exactly what they want to hear, despite the fact what people want to hear is complete nonsense. Like you don't need a college degree. You don't need experience. You just have to think cybersecurity is cool. As long as you spell cool K3W1, (laughs) you know? there's this whole misperception about it so but when i look at degrees going back you don't you don't care if somebody has a degree i mean frankly look at somebody with a cybersecurity degree uh, to take a course in cybersecurity essentially is 15 15 weeks of 3 contact hours per week that's 45 hours of somebody training that's one week of on the job training is what a college degree is theoretically giving you in that cybersecurity course. However, what a degree should ideally do is provide you with writing requirements. It should provide you with a little bit of maybe business courses and round your capabilities. Because when you're a major as an undergraduate, only 25% of your degree is within your major at most. The other 75% is in learning, writing, and other critical thinking skills in the ideal world. I realize not everybody does that, but in the ideal world. And And then we have people who are hiring people without degrees, and then they're like, oh, I don't need somebody with a degree. I'm like, no, you hired a technician. And if I just need somebody to sit there in front of a firewall, yes, hire that person. But if I want somebody I could take, I could promote, who can work with other people, because first we say we don't want degrees, then we complain we don't have people with soft skills working in cybersecurity. And that college degree is 75% soft skills. And then we complain we don't have it because we don't hire, we don't want people with degrees. You can't have it both ways. So again, it's not the degree that matters to me. It's what the degree theoretically made that person that they can bring into your company that makes them not just the technician at the desk, but likely to be more promotable, more relatable to the business areas that they have to deal with and so on. Sorry, there's my soapbox. I went on way too long with that, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no, I think it's a I think it's a pretty interesting topic because you're right that. I've seen that before when somebody's got 10, 20 years experience, but they've not got a college degree, but they're applying to jobs where it says they need one, do they apply? <laughs> Even though they've got all the, all the relevant experience for 20 years or so. Yes, of course they should. But you're right. I I, I kind of like the explanation there anyway, Ira. So I guess um I want to ask you one question before the end of today, um, because we're running a little bit out of time. But I guess in terms of your yeah, the world the future of security, Um, I'd love to know where, number one, you think it's going, and number two, what kind of hot technologies are out there at the moment?
1: So if if you were to, I hate the, well, I think you look at like, you know, the hype cycles of Gartner and other people. Risk quantification is one of the latest hype cycles. Luckily, I'm kind of at an organization that's in that. Mm -hmm. You see a lot of people talking about machine learning. I think, and this is one of those other problems again, with people without degrees, machine learning is gonna automate away the technicians because at the end of the day, what machine learning is and people don't understand this is really just more advanced mathematical algorithms than traditional statistics. And they're able to go ahead and with machine learning with faster computers, you're able to have more complicated mathematical models that help you automate away certain decisions. So SOC analysts, where everybody says people without a degree should go to get a start, those are going to be automated away. You know, maybe some basic low-level programming is going to go away. Few other jobs are going to go away because they're going to be automated away with machine learning. And machine learning, again, is just really more advanced statistics taking into account more data to make more reasonable decisions, for lack of a better way of describing it. And so I think machine learning is gonna automate a lot of cybersecurity. You know, there's a lot of talk about quantum computing. Quantum computing, again, is like another buzzword that people don't understand. Oversimplifying machine learning is just more advanced mathematics. And frankly, if you don't know how, if you haven't gone to college and taken those stupid calculus courses I theoretically never had to use, or those other courses I never had to use, I would not have understood what machine learning actually is and how to implement it because the jobs are going to be how to program machine learning algorithms, not how to be a technician. So you got, you need to future proof yourself and take some college classes on that. Then quantum computing, again, another buzzword, but at the end of the day, quantum computers, the tech underlying technology is definitely more advanced, but really at the end of the day, it's just a faster computer. It means you could do things much more quickly than you could before. And that says, oh, it's gonna help me hack, you know, hackers are gonna have Quan; They already do if they want them, but the reality is it's just gonna make things, it's gonna evolve. We're gonna catch up. We're gonna, the smart people, the people who actually go get their degrees are gonna start developing more technology to fight the other technology. And yes, it's just going to be more of the same, just faster in many ways. So, I mean, I could go on for a while, but those are the three areas I think really should be looked at. Yeah, yeah,
0: no, I'm. Um, it's pretty interesting. I mean, if you you look at all of that then the the AI side of the world, it's going to be obviously just dominating over the next maybe 10, five, 10 years, or even earlier. So it's uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting time for sure, but. Ira, no, it's been, uh, it's been amazing having you on the podcast and diving into a lot of the details, especially the part about the the founders that kind of resonate with that side of it as well. So I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> you probably
1: resonated, you know, my cursing much more than you want to admit. Yeah. So-
0: <laughs> as soon as you said it, I was like, yep, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> but no, um, really appreciate having you on. And uh, yeah, looking forward to meeting you at RSA next week. And um, yeah, looking, maybe we can do one in the future and about uh, and see if all of these come through in terms of your predictions as well, so
1: yeah, I that I will just say as a side note, I really want people to be held accountable to their predictions. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when they said in two thousand, you know, who was it? I think Gartner predicted there will be a billion dollar theft as a result of y two k related issues. I'm like, did anybody hold them accountable? There was another paper some analyst firm put out. I think I it, it they said, um firewalls will no longer exist or something i want people to be held accountable for these stupid predictions that that nobody looks back on and says i want to never use that analyst who said that again yeah yeah i'm willing to be held accountable to my predictions
0: yeah no definitely Definitely, we'll check back in a couple of years and see what the see yeah. if we're, see if we're uh, on the right track. But no, Ira, really, really appreciate you coming on, and uh, yes, we'll speak to you soon.
1: Yeah, have a safe trip.
0: Thank you. Bye bye.